0: Apropos of the fact that uh, they, uh, we were all dressed up, and they had a a, a a Thai temple orchestra from a Thai community church in the East Bay playing music, all set up with these very interesting instruments. They're not they're not Indian instruments, they're not Japanese instruments, they're Thai instruments, but really different kind of instruments from Western instruments. Very beautiful. We they had people playing all dressed up and Thai dancers doing beautiful dancing in the way that you would expect that to look and they had palm readers that you could sign up to get your palm read and face painters and uh, um, uh, um, exhibition ballroom dancers uh, (laughs) who did an exhibition of ballroom dancing in the Main um, meditation hall up there. So here are we all uh, uh, barefoot or in stocking feet, and here are these people in dancing shoes and high heels, like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, uh, really backwards in high heels. It was amazing, and they had a, a, a whole orchestra in that. And then after they finished with all of that, oh wait a minute, Joan Baez sang "Happy Birthday." Mm-hmm and Amazing Grace, and everybody else sang with them, and uh, Nina Wise did one of her performance art things. Everything happened. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and at the end of it all, the people who did the uh, um, ball and dancing uh, exhibition taught quick step to everybody who wanted to learn with a really loud band playing, so everybody was up and dancing. That meditation hall will never be the same <laughs> again. it has a whole new energy imbued in it and it, and, true, and they had a whole meal by the way, served cooked by a Thai restaurant in San Enoma. It was really great and uh Jack told a story that I'd never heard before, amazingly because i've known him for <laughs> i've known him for uh twenty five twenty almost 30 years. I think I've heard every story. But he told about um, having been, when he was ordained as a monk, he said on the very day that he was ordained as a monk in Thailand, his head was shaved, and he was escorted in in the normal solemn pump um, to take his vows. And he said normally they escort in the monk on an elephant uh, into the gates of the monastery. He said... uh, but he said they, there was no elephant available. All the elephants were busy that day. So <laughs> which I thought was so cute. He says, "I had to walk in by myself. It would have been a better story on an elephant, but anyway, all the elephants were busy, but I walked in, and I got ordained, and uh, if I get the story right, I hope because I, I haven't told it, it's been in my mind though. he said, uh, the very next day." That particular temple had an enormous temple festival and musicians and all this theatrics reminiscent of what we had here. I, mean, I didn't think they had backwards and high heels, but they had the <laughs> some Thai equivalent of an extremely big party in the monastery. And he said he was young and ardent and he went to the, uh, the abbot. You know, this is so Jack. He went to the abbot and complained. This is day one in his life as a monk. He, you know, and there's a tremendous hierarchy in the in, in the ordained sangha. You know, you bow to anybody who was ordained one minute before you. And here's the abbot, and he's his first day as an ordained monk. And he goes to complain about this. is not a real monastery. You're not supposed to carry on like this in a monastery. And I came to meditate, and this is not supposed to be happening here and I really wanted to monitor, you know, what's the matter with this monastery, and I think I came to the wrong place because I really wanted to monitor to meditate. And he said, when he got all finished, the abbot said to him, you know, I think you really did come to the wrong place. <laughs> and he went to another monastery. <laughs> but, I, you know, i had never heard that story before, but I think that... <laughs> but apropos of, you know, any idea... When I go places, and not so much now as used to be, but I go someplace, and uh, someone will introduce me to some family affair, a picnic, a family reunion, and someone will say to some other person that I don't know well or personally, they'll say, this is Sylvia, my cousin Sylvia, She's a Buddhist teacher. People will say, oh, hello. You know, they lower their voices. But there's something particularly, they have to have a a kind of a holy or reverential way of addressing somebody. Anyway. Yeah. Can I tell about, just remind people that the box show in Point Reyes at Gallery Route 1 is ending for just good fun, and there's a spiritual section if you want to see spiritual block. Okay, there you go. September fourth. September fourth. So, really, what I wanted to talk about today—let me organize all my papers to see where I'm missing the wrong paper. Wait. wait. Tell us why you were laughing, (laughs) Susan. I have to remember why I was laughing, Susan. Uh, I am missing. Ah, here's my piece of paper. Okay. I'll fix the microphone. Now it'll work. No, it was earlier, you were laughing? yeah, no, no, Fixing. Why was I fixing out laughing because we are so familiar with each other, actually, in terms of the reverential you know Buddhist teacher <laughs> 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 there are places where I go where people are so reverential about I'm a Buddhist teacher that if the microphone totally failed and nobody could hear, no one would let me know. They would just strain to hear. Hear a half a second after I don't get heard, everybody is ready to tell me louder, turn the microphone. <laughs> I get away with nothing, so forget it about reverential. <laughs> Because I'm very happy about it. Forgetting about reverential, it's completely an accident that I'm here. I am here because my parents were the kind of people that they were. I got that so early on, in a very almost 30 years ago in one of my first meditation retreats. I have a lot of zeal. I'm an energetic person. I would get up very very early in the morning. I would stay for every sitting. I would go. I'd never take a nap. Forget it. You know, keep on. And at one point, I caught myself congratulating myself. That was great. Look at you. So much zeal. Get up early in the morning. You're a really good yogi. And I really and I realized in a moment that uh, on a certain level I am but I, that didn't come ex-Nilo. I am because my parents were those kind of people who got up in the morning and went to work and taught me to do that because their parents got up in the morning and went to work. It's impossible for me to not get up. If the bell rings and people are supposed to get up when that bell rings, it would just not be a possibility for me to lie in the bed. So it just, it, it's not any big deal that I get up. It's just what has to happen given my karma. So, I am so, I'm an early lesson in. I can rejoice in my karma, which is different, and be pleased about it, even proud of it, delighted with my karma. It's good karma. But I can't get puffed up about it because I didn't do it. It can't not happen that way. And in the largest sense, nothing can not happen the way it happened because everything is determined that way. If I didn't get out, I could don't even I, I it would not be true about me that I was a slothful person. I don't have to make it into a moral flaw or a moral um superiority. It's just what is and it couldn't be otherwise. And really fundamentally that's about where I'm thinking about dharma these days because so many of our opinions my opinions are based on the thought ah it shouldn't be this way it should be another way. This is good, this is not good. This is what I think is what it can't be otherwise, and, and I am seriously, seriously, if I had to take probably this whole thing that I'm about to teach about that I thought was a big thing to say, I can probably say it in one sentence. The, the, the second of the Four Noble Truths that the cause of suffering is craving. The mind craves otherwise because on some subtle level it believes it could be otherwise, otherwise it wouldn't. And if it actually got karma, that it's the way it is because it's the way it is, it wouldn't. Craving wouldn't arise. The Craving in the sense of the um, insatiable need to have it otherwise. It's a very big difference between there are conditions in the world that I wish were different, that I work very hard to make different, that I would do anything to make different. The very clear uh, definition of uh, suffering of dukkha is that, that the, the the levels of dukkha, the, but the, the, the level of dukkha at which we can address ourselves in practice is the level in which the mind engages with what's happening with contention, either with the sense I, I can't stand this, I have to get rid of it, or I have to get more of it, I have to change it in some way when I can't. When I can, then you do. But when I can't, and that sense of uh, is the part that can't get it that it can't be otherwise it's that way that that understanding of karma which is not sometimes you see there's a there's even a way of misunderstanding that you say well it's, all, it's everybody's karma i can't do anything about it the, it that's a misunderstanding as well. What's happening is the karma of this moment. I can't do anything about what's happening in this moment because that is an already arisen fact. How I am in this moment and how everybody else is in this moment is part of the karma of the next moment and of the whole world. So at the same time, if I really got it about not struggling, I would really get it about making every effort in the world to... Really, make my contribution into this moment one of non greed, non hatred, and non delusion, so as to lessen the suffering in the next arising moment. That's so clear to me. I can do the. Is that clear to you? Did I say that clearly? That's so clear to me. Sometimes there's a confusion about what is desire. I still want things. I want plenty of things. It's not about wanting and not wanting. Wanting and not wanting is a, a human is a human response to pleasant and unpleasant. The part of the mind that says it needs to be otherwise in order for my heart to be at ease is the part that 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 is suffering in the sense that we understand it. To be able to say it's this way, my heart is at ease with the fact that it is this way lawfully. I'm sad that it's this way. I would that it were another way. I'm doing everything I can to make it another way but I do not need to be in contention with the moment. I do not have to be um, uh, at odds with life. I can remain connected in a loving and caring relationship to life itself, in which case I can respond with kindness and compassion and appreciation even, just for the lawfulness of how things are. Maybe that's the whole talk. I hope not, because I had a lot of stuff that I wanted to say. <laughs> Besides, what would I do with the next half hour? But anyway. So what do I really want to tell you from this next half hour? I wanted to talk... I'm going see the order I'm going to do this. Well, maybe we'll start from um, that particular opinion... That trips up the mind, the opinion that it should be otherwise, that particular, or an opinion that this is the right way, which also is a cause of great suffering in the mind. That I have plenty of views. I think maybe it's uh, it's uh, actually the conviction that one's, that my view is the truth and other people's views are opinions is the one that, that's the problem. <laughs> I, I'll read you a little bit to make sure that this is in a Buddhist context. This is, called, this is from the Sutta Nipata. This is the Buddha. This I do now declare after investigation. There is nothing among all doctrines that such a one as I would embrace... Seeing misery in philosophical views without adopting any of them, searching for truth, I discovered inward peace, not by philosophical opinion, not by tradition, not by knowledge, not by virtue and holy works. Can anyone say that purity exists? Nor by absence of any of those things. One who thinks oneself equal to others or superior or inferior for that very reason disputes, but one who is unmoved under those three conditions. For that person, the notions equal, superior, inferior do not exist. An accomplished person does not by a philosophical view or by thinking become arrogant, for he is not of that sort. He is led by not clinging to holy works or by tradition, he is led into the resting places of the mind. For one who is free from views, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. But those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions, they wander about in the world, annoying people. (Laughter) <laughs> I think that's very good. (laughs) So I think about the things that we think we know. And I I really wanted to talk a little bit about what we think we know. And um, uh, it came up because there was an article uh, that I read in the airplane the other day uh, in the Wall Street Journal on... uh, called a spotless mind which caught my attention because that's a line that comes up a lot when you read dharma spotless mind usually means a mind that's not sullied by um that's not obscured by opinions that make it difficult to see through to what is actually true and it's a, it's an interesting article so I want I I just want to I'll tell you what it says And then you'll have a minute to think about it. Um, Starts this way. As a teenager, the woman had suffered a horrific rape, the memory of which she carried into adulthood. The slightest mention on television or in conversation of a child being harmed left her short of breath and bathed in sweat. She regularly relived the trauma and nightmares and flashbacks. Once while she was having her hair done, a radio show began discussing sexual assaults of children, and she sprang from her chair and fled the salon. For her and every other victim of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, bad memories are only the beginning. Recalling a traumatic memory, scientists now think, does something even worse than trigger the disabling physiological response the woman suffered, It reconsolidates the memory, wiring it more strongly into the mind. That's a very interesting—it's just an interesting thing to think about. How many people in this room are psychotherapists of one stripe or another? Okay. Many of us. I went to school um, in the 1960s when the prevailing idea was that somewhere buried in the mind was— Uh, the psychogenic etiology of your current um, distress, whatever it was, that something had happened at some point that you had somehow not sufficiently (coughs) phased, worked through, digested, seen completely forgiven something. No, actually, we didn't talk about forgiven. Maybe I talk about forgiven more now. Come to terms with and that that being hidden in the past, it precluded you moving forward, that it, it uh, consumed a certain amount of psychic energy was the way that it was described. And it, uh, it bound itself up with psychic energy to keep itself secret and repressed in um, somehow unconscious of your mind, and that if you discussed it and brought it up and talked about how you felt about it, it would bring it out from there, and then it would be out from you, and you would be free. It's just a paradigm, but we worked that way for a very long time. And it's just interesting to me because when 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 it was a working paradigm, we didn't think of it as a working paradigm. We thought of it as a truth about how to work. So emerging evidence that remembering a trauma strengthens that memory is inspiring controversial studies in which people take a drug that may block memory reconsolidation, leaving the memory intact but weakened and extinguishing the emotion associated with it. This raises a troubling question. Will the drug rob people of an essential, even a defining aspect of themselves? So this is how they... Well, This this is very interesting because I think to myself how frequently, uh, especially a traumatic in- incident, remains the defining um, way that we identify ourselves so that people, when we they meet each other and they start to get to know each other and they begin to tell each other what's important, they so tell me about your life, they tell first about what was traumatic about it. You know, my parents divorced when I was 10. I moved 17 times in my childhood. Which are both probably difficult things to assimilate. Not making light of it, but people don't usually start by saying, "My father was a gifted cellist," uh, "My mother was a fantastic cook." My, you know, I have, uh, I have a twin that I. You know. We we sort of lead with what frightened us. <coughs> it's no mystery why traumatic memories are so vivid. Compare your recollection of September 11th, 2001, with that of September 10th. When we experience something traumatic, stress hormones such as noradrenaline are released from the brainstem and reach the amygdala, says so-and-so, so-and-so of Boston Medical School. The amygdala tells the hippocampus, which processes memory, to uh, remember this, and to remember it better and burns it into the memory. It's like, uh-oh, this is a, you know, be afraid of this in the future. If you have some bad event sometime, you remember that, because it's, a, it's you remember we all the, I don't know a lot about rat psychology, but my sense of it is that you, if you learn, if you push this trigger, you get a shock, you don't go back and do that trigger again. You have to remember what is dangerous. It's a really useful thing for human beings to remember. I shouldn't go with this person or that person or in this place or that place because there'll be. So one of the questions is can you remember that without it leaving a trace of uh, agitated alarm? Can you just know it? Because memories run on chemicals, they can be altered by chemicals. Chemicals called beta blockers, which t- treat hypertension. This is so interesting. Are the brain's version of pushy people who sneak into company parking spaces reserved for particular employees. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> you know, I, I pulled into a parking space the other day, because I was going to get my hair done, and it had somebody's name on It said something like Henderson or something. I don't know who Henderson is. I don't know. If it was a, anyway. It was a weekend day. Maybe Henderson works during the week. But I know that my name is not Henderson. So I backed out of there and I went someplace else because I would have been uneasy about that. But, but this is the interesting thing. Maybe Henderson was getting the hair done nicely somewhere and I was late. But anyway, pushy people. The beta blockers block so no. Just as the employee can't go to work if she can't park, nor adrenaline can't burn memories into the brain if it can't get into the receptor. That's very interesting. In a 2002 pilot study, Dr. So-and-so, this very one, and a colleague gave the beta blocker propranolol, which many people take for high blood pressure, I think to people arriving at an emergency room after accidents and for 10 days afterwards. They come have an accident, they give it to them along with treating them for the accident. Three months later, those people had fewer post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms, weaker memories of the trauma, than emergency room patients who had been given a placebo. When reminded of their accident, they recalled it with less suffering than the placebo group. We interpret this as saying that the medicine interferes with the consolidation of the traumatic memory. Uh, Scientists also gave lab rats that have learned to associate a tone with an electric shock, for example, that same drug, and it erases the animal's fear of impending shock (laughs) long enough so that they no longer freeze in terror when they hear that tone. Theory is when you reactivate a memory, it needs to be reconsolidated in order to be retained, the drug interferes with this. It's the same with people. And you have another shot at helping them. Even though the ordinary merit memory was consolidated, the drugs weaken it so that it's not recalled with so much emotion. So it's it's just an interesting thing. So they have people for it and people against it. It's just another mind drug. we would be messing with ourselves. Maybe we shouldn't do it. It's one of the debates in medicine now. But it was an interesting thing for me to read for a couple of reasons because I think about the fact that, for one thing, it's been the established treatment for things. If you have a disaster in a school and um, in a schoolyard and aid workers go there to discuss it and rediscuss it and discuss it over with the people in the school, does that make them more or less frightened? You know? Um Listening over and over and over again on, um, I hear stories about children whose um, anxiety disorder—they uh, probably had the genes for it—but manifested began to manifest anxiety disorder just after nine eleven, because we were all privy to over and over and over again pictures of that on TV. So the question, the, one of the reasons I'm bringing it up is. is it, well, two reasons I'm bringing it up. One is to say not knocking the psychologist that, that that created all those therapies where you shouted and beat the pillows with rubber bats, styrofoam. Anybody ever did that, styrofoam, bats, hitting the pillows, shouting? I'm not so sure that that was helpful for people. I have friends who did. I never did it. It didn't appeal to me, but... Uh, And my friends are all fine now, having done it, (laughs) but nobody got, I don't know that anybody got worse from doing it, but I don't know if anybody got better from doing it. It was kind of the notion that if you got it out of you, it would be out, but that is the food poisoning metaphor for mental distress, and I don't think it works. Food poisoning, if it's out of you, it's out. Mental distress, I'm not sure. Because this seems to make the point that the more you review that, the more it's the habit of the mind to review it. And the research that's now coming out in psychology is that the more that the mind intentionally uh, brings itself to blessing, apropos of talking before about blessing, intentionally brings itself to appreciation, intentionally brings itself to gratitude, the more that that becomes the habit of the mind and it provides a more salubrious context for the mind. Again, I want to be sure that I'm doing two things, that I am not bad-mouthing the psychologists, who are most of them my friends, who are the psychologists for the last half century, that all uh, that all said it makes perfect sense. If you bring it to light and it's not hidden in your shadow, it'll be out, it won't bother you. And now we're all rethinking, hmm, maybe that's true and not as true as people thought. Maybe it's partially true. I heard a really compelling story last week uh, from a friend of mine who told about his mother, whose father has become so uh, incapacitated with uh, Alzheimer's that he's needed to be put in an institution at this point, doesn't recognize people really can't take care of him at home anymore. So his elderly mother is at home alone. He talked about his mother developing symptoms very soon after that of feeling all of a sudden faint and feeling dizzy and um, just strange kinds of neurological symptoms. That she's, a, she's an older woman, but she's been otherwise hale and healthy. And uh, my friend, by his description, as he tells the story, he says, "You know, you have to figure. Uh, we, uh, I grew up in uh, New England from 200 years of uh, WASP ancestry. We do not express emotions; we hold them in. We do not. Uh, we don't talk about how we feel. How we feel? Uh, if we feel bad, it's your own business. If you feel bad, you just let people know what's good." Anyway, he tells that as a preamble to the fact that when all the doctors had discovered that there was nothing the matter with his mother, some sensitive therapist working with her did some, made some sensitive overture that caused her to realize and become quite overwhelmed with how mad she was at her husband for leaving her. Yeah. and. That it's you know it's a, it is patently an unreasonable thing to be mad at somebody who got Alzheimer's and left you emotionally. Nobody purposely says "I'm now going to get alzheimer's and leave you. It's not a purposeful leave, but in effect, he abandoned her and he left her alone. She's an old woman alone, and he's there and somehow coming into the awareness of that, not only how sad she was, but how mad how unreasonable it was to be mad, but she was mad. Come here, do this to me, and I'm an old woman, and I'm left alone. And she talked about that for some amount of time with this therapist, and all the dizziness and all the neurological symptoms went away. Mm -hmm. So it's not A or B, but maybe A and B. And for this person, it was really important to discover what was in her psyche, and really important to feel how mad she was, and to talk about how mad she was. And so the question becomes, how long should you talk about how mad you are? <laughs> you know, should it become your identity at this point, or is there a way in which we can titrate? Okay, that's enough now from here on in. You know, I don't know. You know, it's all very, I, in, in in a sense, what I'm thinking to myself is, My error, if I had an error at any point, was to think this is the way. And if I'm any closer to a non-error now, it's in thinking, you know, it's so mysterious how the mind works and for everybody differently. But there's a word that's now going around in psychology called positive psychology. Anybody heard of that? It's not make the best of it, but coaching is positive psychology, which is having the biggest growth. Of all uh somebody Phyllis is a co- we have any coaches here? oh, you are in Israel, a coach, <laughs> oh good, Anat as a coach, uh, Phyllis, who comes frequently as a coach, my daughter, Emily, who came and talked one day with Phyllis about coaching as a coach it 's not to say that you don 't discuss what happened to people in their lives. The bulk of the emphasis, if I am saying it right is uh, to take everything that's true about a person, what happened, what's going with them now, what their strengths, what their potential is, and to um, maximize their ability to see where, with what my situation is now, I can go with this, and to support them in that. It's, It's more a growth model, if you want to think about it, than a pathological model. Not that I'm stuck with myself until I deal with what happened, but here I am and I can go forward from here. Is that close enough I'm not to? Okay. <laughs> Make sure I do it right. Uh, that's the fancy word is positive psychology, which is where psychology is moving, I think, these days. I'm thinking more about uh, a friend of mine, uh, uh, a spiritual teacher, who is fond of saying, you know, it's much much more folksy. He said, the mind is like tofu. He said, by itself, tofu does not have any taste at all. But what you cook with it depends on what you marinate it in. And if you marinate it in a sweet marinade, it will come out something good that you'll want to eat. And if you marinate it in bitterness, it will be something that you don't want to eat. So when you think about uh, the art of meditation, as the art and science of placing the attention in a certain way towards a certain reason, it, it, we are we would be talking about. I talk a lot these days about what sweetens the mind, which does not mean repression or denial or saying this is not true. say this is true, that's true. I am so sad. For example, a person might be able to say, I am so terribly sad that my life partner is not available to me anymore and I'm lonesome. And I'm angry about it as well, which is irrational, but nevertheless, that's my neural system. It's angry as well. And in addition to that, my health is still good. And this is happening, and this is happening. It is not crystallizing an identity around one piece of the truth of the moment, and particularly the most painful piece, which is what the mind tends to do just uh instinctively when we're in pain. You know, if you suddenly uh stub your toe or catch your hand in the door or whatever, at the same moment you're not thinking about what are you gonna make for dinner or what's gonna happen tomorrow. The whole attention is on the pain and how can I deal with it. So it's a real art to be able to say, I have this pain and the mind tends to constrict around how will I get rid of this pain And I think what we are talking about more in meditation now is how will I make the mind supple and malleable and relaxed enough to accommodate this pain along with the truth of whatever else is happening. I see that in a a mini form when when we sit in the morning and we uh, mention who we're thinking about. And for the most part, if you listen... And this is not suggesting that we should say anything that isn't immediate. Everybody says what's on their heart. For the most part, we think about people in jeopardy, people with chemotherapy and people with uh, different illnesses. And when I listen in some weeks, you see all the, not all, but uh, the vast numbers of things that flesh and psyche are heir to. You think it's amazing that people carry on And then in between, somebody will say, and Susie is having twins, and my grandchild started kindergarten today, and -and so-and-so got married, and this happened, and that happened. And I think the mind, after it has said, this is what's weighing my heart down, and said that, it discovers that this is what's holding my heart up. The mind is balanced enough, it has room to notice what's weighing it down, and what's holding it up. It needs to have a little bit of extra room in it. And that maybe one of the things that we're doing when we sit down to meditate is we are making ourselves still enough so that the mind might be relaxed enough to let in more data than just the immediate pain. And that it just reveals itself to us. And There's a kind of a moment in the mind. I was thinking about somebody ta- reminded me um, about um, my having told this story a long time ago. Just yesterday, she said that was that helped me out so much. So it just came in my mind right now. She said, but people have to know that. Well, here's a story. She said, you remember you told that story about Cape Canaveral. Um, it's a Cape Canaveral story. It actually doesn't have to do with Cape Canaveral. It has to do with the mind getting caught up in a story of a, of particular pain of some sort. And I had told her the story of uh, on some meditation retreat some decades ago, early on. I learned a lot from this, uh, that the mind had done, as it sometimes does, found some memory out of the past. Those memories are floating around. They're there all the time. Found some memory out of the past that was painful of something that had happened to me. So it told that story, and I and I felt sad. And then because memories are coded somehow in the mind, I, I see it visually, but I'm sure it's not the file cabinet or the bobbin drawer that I imagine, but... Stan Graf said it's like a bobbin drawer with different color bobbins on it, and that every time you have a, a memory of a certain kind, like a red memory, it gets filed with a red thread, and a aquamarine gets filed here. So that when you have another memory and it, uh, it uh, ticks that particular bobbin, you feel it, you file it on that bobbin, and then the bobbin unrolls a little bit, so this is the last time I felt the same feeling was in conjunction with this, and I also felt it about that, and what's more, I felt it about that, and I really remember that it goes way back, so that you have a lifetime on that bobbin. So I had to spend a day with some bobbin unfolding itself, and telling, and and re-listening to some particularly touching story, and it doesn't even matter, and I actually don't even remember what it was, but some aspect of my childhood growing up. And I was quite overwhelmed with sadness for myself, for the situation, for whatever. And it finally got to be the end of the afternoon, and uh, so we bell rang, we went out of the meditation hall. And normally it's tea time at that time. But my mind was so frayed, I couldn't think about the tea. And I, I really, it's like I couldn't get my mind together. And I was just overwhelmed by my sadness about it. And so I began to strategize. And I thought, well, I'll just, I won't go to the tea. I'll go to my cabin and I'll um, take a shower. A shower will really be good. I'll take a nice shower. It'll perk me up. So I, I begin to turn to go in the direction of the cabin I'm sharing with several other women. And I just start to walk. And the bell rings, the big bell outside the cafeteria rings for tea. And I had the thought, I wonder if they're going to serve cookies with the tea. <laughs> you know, I didn't plan to have the thought. I just, it's sort of like Pavlov's dog, they rang the bell. <laughs> and I had the thought, I wonder if they're going to serve cookies with the tea. And the truth is, I... I often don't eat the cookies with the tea because I don't do sugar very well. But I had that thought. I wonder if they're going to serve cookies with the tea. And um, I realized in the moment that I had that thought that that thought was free of sadness. It was absolutely just a plain thought. In the moment that my mind was thinking, I wonder, it was just a curious mind, I wonder if they're going to have cookies for tea. It had no sadness in it. And the sense I had felt the moment before that that sadness was an impermeable blanket of gloom over me. In that moment, it wasn't an impermeable blanket of gloom. It had a hole in it. In that moment, it had a moment free from gloom. And I, um, and I saw it. And I thought to myself, uh, I guess it was uh, we had begun shuttle launches from Cape Canaveral. And I'd watch them on TV, and you know sometimes they have cloud cover, and they say we're at seven seconds and counting. Where, but the, the the you know it's overcast, and so on the Cape, so we're seven seconds holding and counting, and because cloud cover, cloud cover, cloud cover, and then all of a sudden they'll say, okay, there's a break in the clouds. Six, five, four, three, two, one. And I thought to myself, there's a break in the clouds. I'm out of here, you know, and. Uh, it was such a, it was such an important learning moment that in that mo- you need a free moment, in which you can say, I am now choosing, to not return to the story that's feeding the gloom story. I can go back to the memories with the gloom, or I can. I don't have to have to go out the cookie. I can just say, finish with the gloom. I'm out of here. So, yeah, is that, is that a good story? Because this yeah, person yeah, yesterday yeah. said, you should tell that story because it's the awareness, not even that this second is going to be a break in the clouds, but any minute there could be. And that if I am on a lookout, like in Cape Canaveral, they're not saying, well, forget about it. They're looking out the window to see where is there a break in the clouds. So the minute there's a break in the clouds, so it, it, it makes the mind alert. When there'll be a break in the clouds, I'll get out of here. And there's always... Some break in the cloud comes along. you know it happens it happens, uh, and you know maybe this is not the the good allusion to it, but sometimes you go back to someone's house after a funeral, and everybody is very sad because young or old, someone's not on this plane of existence anymore and there's a level of sadness around it and people will spend the day and they'll eat and they'll sit together and keep each other company and suddenly someone will tell a story about remember the time we did xyz and it'll be funny and and everybody'll start to laugh and then you suddenly have a feeling how could i be laughing because i'm so sad but you know I'm not, and it's not one of, it doesn't mean that the sadness of the loss is gone it just means the lightness of the gloom is a little bit softened because you know, this is this gloom is here. It should be, because we've just really had a ceremony of parting, so it's, we have to have time to do this. But there will be this break in the clouds, and another break in the clouds, and another break in the clouds, and then the the weather will shift a little bit. Mostly, my sense is, um, I have no sense that there's something about spiritual practice. Uh, that really is the end of grief and lamentation. It says that in the Mindfulness Sutta, this, amongst monks, is the end of grief and lamentation. I think in human bodies there is grief and lamentation. I think there is also hope for the possibility of the end of everything, that the, the things pass, that grief and lamentation are normal to animal beings, even probably not human animals, miss what they're used to having around. So we're touched by the arrival of people into our lives and the passing of people out of our lives. We care. Otherwise we couldn't intuit that other people care and it wouldn't transform our hearts to kindness. It has to we have to care. And it has to touch us in order to care. And something Sometimes it's missing in a person that ability to care, but not not often. And we, none of us, I think, would um, take it as an option if someone said he has swallowed this pill, and everything will be all right, coming and going. We wouldn't want it. I wouldn't want it. Anyway, what I hoped I would talk about, which I'm not exactly sure I did, um, I think maybe, was um, a kind of looseness in the mind, which I hope I am beginning to cultivate. Maybe an openness to views. That would be it. An openness to views, not wedded to views. There's a line in the end of the Metta Sutta that says, the clear-headed one by not clinging to fixed views, is not born again into this world, which I think means is not born again into the realm of suffering. Probably you all know the Sufi story of the two people who come with a complaint, probably a couple, who knows, it's the original relationship counseling, come to the Sufi master and they both have a complaint and the one of them speaks their complaint about the other one and uh, the Sufi master listens and he says, You're right. And then the other one speaks the complaint about the other one and the master listens and he says, You're right. And the assistant to the Sufi master leans over and says, Listen, they just presented you with a dispute. (laughs) And you said that both of them were right. He said, "You're right, too." <laughs> so uh, So take a breath in and out. And I'll see you next week." talk was given by Sylvia Burstin at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on August 24, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit org slash donate.